At the moment, we're looking at the kings and prophets of the divided kingdom. And today, we're looking at King Manasseh. Okay? King Manasseh. Now, some of you might have seen this around. Uh, this is the poster about it. Are we listening? Because God is definitely speaking. And how should we respond? And then some of you might have been using two bits of paper. One was a reading plan, which is on our website, but we've run out of hard copies. But it finishes this Thursday, but you can still use it any time of the year if you want to. It's got dates on, but that's not uh, necessary to use. Also, there's this uh, background paper, which talks about all the different prophets and the kings and the sort of chapters and verses and some interesting questions at the front of it that might be useful for you as well. So, quickly just reminding yourself about the background to the kings and everything. You might remember, before the, uh, divided, the kingdom was divided, there were three main kings. There was Saul, there was David, and there was Solomon. And they had good things about them, didn't they, and bad things about them. But even then, Israel wasn't really a united country. It was still had its issues, and there was wars, and there was, even in families, there was not good things going on. So, so far, we've investigated these six kings. We've had Roboam, Jeroboam I, Ahab, Jehoshaphat, Jehu, and Hezekiah. And we've only got three left, including Manasseh. So, Manasseh we're looking at today. But then next week, John's going to be speaking on Josiah. And then the week after, Andy's going to speak on Hashir and Zedekiah as well. So, if we're thinking about Manasseh, I wonder... Do you think it was a good king or a bad king? Don't tell me yet. It was a rhetorical question. Could you tell? <laughs> yeah. Let's read the family. King Manasseh then. So last week, Paul was talking about King Hezekiah and Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, who was sort of not doing good things for the, the uh, Judeans. But Hezekiah was a great king. How about the king before him? We haven't thought about it together on a Sunday morning, but the king before Hezekiah was King Ahaz. Bad king. Boo. Do I hear a boo? Oh, thank you for being half-hearted. Maybe you'll warm <laughs> up a little bit more later. That's okay. So we want to sort of say, well, what was Manasseh like? Was he a good king? Was he an evil king? Or was he perhaps a mixture of the two? Mm, we'll see, won't we? So let's see about that. Manasseh um, is mentioned in these two chapters mainly. He's in other parts of the Bible as well. But these are the two main chapters that we'd read about if we wanted to know about King Manasseh. And, you know, he was from King Hezekiah's sort of family. So with a good king, you'd think he'd have a really good childhood, wouldn't you? Sort of playing with... Maybe, yeah, or at least ancient catapults or things like that. Yeah, he could have done that. So I bet he had a great childhood because Hezekiah was a good king and surely you'd think if he was a good king, the children would respond. Maybe, maybe not. But Hezekiah was ill at the end of his life, if you remember, from what Paul was saying last week. And he prayed, Lord, will you do something? Will you change me, change the illness? And so he had extra life. In his, uh, at the end of his life, didn't he? He had 15 extra years. And it's interesting, I haven't found out why, because Jewel asked me this question during the week. Manasseh became king when he was 12 years old. 
So that was after Hezekiah had prayed. And you sort of think, well, how was that in God's plan then? That's, was it God's plan originally for Hezekiah to have these extra 15 years of life? Because Hez, uh, Manasseh was born after Hezekiah's illness. I loved thinking about the Bible and thinking, well, if this happened and that didn't happen, would this have happened? Anyway, I don't know the answers. Ask Paul at the end. He's going to be researching it. And we're all going to go to Paul at the end. He'll be ready and willing to answer any of your questions about deep theological truths that I don't know anything about. What was Manasseh like then? We said that he was really in these two chapters, but there are other bits of the Bible where Manasseh is mentioned. And he began his reign, by the way, in 697 BC, or thereabouts. This is what Jeremiah sort of said about him. And this is in Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. Then the the Lord said to me, that's Jeremiah, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me interceding for them, my heart would still not be turned with favour towards this people, Judah. Send them away from my presence and out of my sight and let them go. And it shall be that when they say to you, where should we go? Then tell them, thus says the Lord, those destined for death, to death. Those for the sword, to the sword. Those for famine, to famine. Those for captivity, to captivity. I will appoint four kinds of destroyers over them, says the Lord. The sword to slay, the dogs to tear and drag away, and the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. I will make them an object of horror to all the nations of the earth because of Manasseh, the despicable son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for the evil and detestable things which he did in Jerusalem. And like I say, that's Jeremiah 15, 1-4. So, Jeremiah, through God, is calling him despicable. It doesn't get a lot worse than that, does it? If someone you know is despicable, they're kind of rock bottom almost, aren't they? And he might have been sort of a good king in some ways, like economically, archaeologists suggest that there was a good time when uh, the country was doing well economically because of different pots of found and all this sort of stuff, and olive oil was being sort of well-produced and all this. But the religious state of the country was terrible. Ezekiah, the king before him, remember, had done great things. He sort of got rid of some of the things that Ahaz had done. He got rid of the high places. He got rid of the shrines. But Manasseh, he was different. He brought back all the false worship. Even in the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, lots of things were happening there which were bad. Evil, terrible. If we were reading just a little bit of Two Kings that uh, was on that uh, slide earlier, we could sort of see some of the things that they were saying. So that's Two Kings 21. Like he took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. It talks about him worshipping the starry hosts and building altars and just getting things back to how his grandfather had made them. 
And tradition says, Jewish tradition says that Manasseh didn't like Isaiah because Isaiah was one of the prophets at the time who was speaking out for what God said. And so Isaiah knew that Manasseh didn't want him to live. And so he went and hid himself in a hollowed out cedar trunk. But then uh, Manasseh sent two blokes, well, I'm thinking it's two blokes, my imagination's pretty good, but several people, and they got a saw and they cut the cedar tree down because they knew where Isaiah was. So what happened to Isaiah? He got cut in two with a saw. And that's what Hebrews says. If you remember, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it was verse 37, it talks about people being sawn in two. And that's Isaiah. Because Manasseh didn't want him. And so uh, Isaiah was hiding in this tree. And so, yeah, they knew where Isaiah was. So they just cut it down and cut him in two. You just can't imagine it, can you? Such evil. So terrible. But it's in Hebrews and it's sort of Jewish tradition to suggest that as well. Going back to uh, 2 Kings 21, it talks about how God says, therefore, this is what the Lord says, this is verse 12 and the following verse, this is what the Lord says, the God of Israel, I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And you can imagine just doing your washing up, can't you? Sort of when you've got some dirty plates or whatever, you give them a good old wipe and you're just really going to clean it up. And then when it's totally clean, wiped out, then you just turn it upside down. And that's what God said he was going to do to Judah. That it was just going to be cleaned out wiped out, just like a clean bowl when it was dirty, wiped out totally. So he was going to sort Judah out because of Manasseh and what he'd done and what he'd made the people do. High places are mentioned a lot in the kings. You probably sort of found that out yourself. And high places were not always elevated places where people worshipped, but there were always places where people worshipped false gods, false idols, where there, maybe there were shrines for sexual things and fertility things, just false gods, lumps of stone or other things, and people would worship there. I wonder, are there any high places in your life? Any places where you don't seek God, but you have your own ideas? And someone sort of maybe might say something and you just decide to yourself, rah, rah. you just make, you just go to this place and maybe it's a really easy place to go to because you've been there lots of times where people say something horrible or something nice but you disagree with it and you just visit this place and you just think, I'm right again. I've got it right. But really, your attitude isn't. Or maybe your emotions aren't right when someone says something to you. Or maybe your thoughts or your actions. I know everyone has high places. But perhaps God is calling us to stop visiting them. God is calling us to make a choice 
and not follow our sort of non-Christian roots, if you like, but to say, God, I've heard you speak. You've said, be new, be a new creation. So help me not to go to those places. I wonder how different are my emotions and attitudes and thoughts and actions to the kings I've been reading about. Because it's really easy to point the finger at the kings, isn't it? And say, oh, they did lots of terrible things. They did this, they did that. How evil, how horrible. But one of the questions on the front of this piece that I did, it says, how different are my attitudes, beliefs and actions to the kings I've read about? Does anything need to change? What will be my initial step? When will I do this? I remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7 when he sort of told people about having a little speck in their eyes. And you sort of say, oh, look at that person with a speck in their eyes. But of course, Jesus said something really good. He just used a picture to help us again, didn't he? And he says, you're sort of saying about that person with a speck. But have you seen the plank in your eye sort of six foot, one by two, sort of really big. And you've got, you're saying about that person with a little minute speck and how bad they are. But you forget to look in the mirror. You forget to look at your own attitudes and emotions and thoughts and actions. I wonder if you ever count the times someone does something wrong. That's ever so easy, isn't it? Maybe someone at work makes the coffee the wrong way. And so far, since they've been there, they've done it 49 times. And one of these times, you're going to say something to them because they're just doing it wrong. Or they don't clear up after themselves. Do you know, 60 times just last week, this person at work didn't clear up after themselves. And there was all this... Stuff in the bottom of the cup. And they must have dunked the biscuits because, oh, it's horrible. Do you know what I mean? There's all these things we have feelings about. But so what when it comes down to it? We've got bad attitudes. We've got bad emotions and thoughts, haven't we? And yet so often we just think, I'm right again. I need to sort that person out. I'll have a kind word because that will make sure they know I'm right and they're not. And we can smile about it, can't we? But we are the same as the kings. As you read through the kings over the next sort of few weeks, think to yourself, I'm just like that. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 3.23. God's glorious standard. Brilliant. We worship God, don't we? How wonderful, how brilliant, how, how super God is. And we know that. And yet we fall short. I remember people do a limbo dance sometimes, and that's something I can't do. But do you remember how low can you go? And that's what we are like, aren't we? In our lives, our goodness, our brilliantness is down here. Whereas God's glorious standard is so different from ours. We've got the plank. Let's forget about other people's specs and just concentrate on our own.
I wonder, your default setting, how tolerant of you of sin in your life? Perhaps you've got okay sins, worry, pride, putting people down, maybe other things, and you just think, yeah, that's okay. I'm quite tolerant of that. I'm all right. But God doesn't call us to have our tolerance set near the top. God calls us to choose, to say, I'm going to turn this dial down. I know what my life is like, and I've had enough. I can't live like that. I can't call myself a disciple of Jesus if I'm happy at gossiping. I can't be a disciple of Jesus if I look at pornography or lie or think that's okay because I'm not hurting anybody. Sometimes the devil says things like that and we believe the devil more than we believe God thinking, yeah, it doesn't matter. No one's going to get hurt by it. But God calls us to to turn down that setting so that we hate sin. We don't become tolerant of sin in ourselves. Rick Warren is an interesting chap. A few years ago he wrote, a lie doesn't become truth, wrong doesn't become right, and evil doesn't become good just because it is accepted by a majority. We can look at lots of things in society now, can't we? And it's just the norm for people to have abortions. How terrible, really. It's the norm for different things to happen in society because society says it's okay. So it must be okay. But that can't be true, can it? If the word of God is the word of God, and it is, then truly and surely what it says in the Bible must be what we believe, mustn't it? And our setting needs to be turned down to hating sin. It must be turned down to doing something about it and not just being content with our own lives. We can't flirt with temptation. We can't be casual with sin. Sin is sin. And we all deserve death because of it, don't we? If we're just looking at 2 Kings 21, because a few minutes ago I was asking you, oh, was Manasseh a good king or a bad king? And I saw some facial expressions and some nodding and some shaking going on. But if we're looking at just 2 Kings 21, we'd definitely say he was a terrible king, an evil king. But looking at Chronicles, we get a different picture. Because Manasseh changed. He was a a vassal king to the Assyrian Empire, and so he was taken to Assyria in chains and with a hook in his nose and all these sort of things. And then he realised that Yahweh is the Lord. And he changed, and he repented. And you might have heard of this book, The Prayer of Manasseh. I've got it in my Bible here, because it's not in the Bible Bible, but it's in the Apocrypha. So this is my uh, copy of that with the uh, Bible as well. And there it is, the prayer of Manasseh. So if you want to read it at home, it's only 15 verses long. If you want to have a read at it and just see what it's like, there's lots of prayers like it in the Bible already, but I'm not going to read it now. It's too much to say, too much to enjoy. But you can read it at home and just think, oh yeah, 
Yeah, I wonder if it was. Lots of scholars think this prayer of Manasseh was written quite a lot later than when Manasseh was alive. But have a read of it, just in the Apocrypha. The message describes his prayer of, as of total repentance. And it also says that he had a career in evil. That's how he describes him. And I suppose we all might feel that part of our life is great. Like on a Sunday morning, we might be, yay, all for Jesus, everything's good. But let's praise, let's lift our hands, let's have a sort of, a, not in, over the baptistry, but let's have a pogo dance for God and things like that. We might sort of say, might we? Let's really go for it. But then when we're at home, maybe we're thinking about other things, like we said before, that we might do that aren't so good, that aren't so Christ-like. Manasseh changed. So did Paul of Tarsus. I bet you remember the story. Remember all about it. But in 1 Timothy 1, 15-17, he says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is Paul speaking. But it could be me as well, because I'm pretty bad, aren't I? Just like it could be any of you. But, in, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul was saying he was limbo dancing champion. He was the worst, wasn't he? There was no one worse sinner than he was. But I think on occasions, or maybe more than on occasions, we could all say that, if we were honest. That there's things in our lives still that we're not happy about. I think you know that I'm not very boastful. But I want to tell you something that happened when I was young. I was, award, I was an award-winning swimmer when I was young. And Jill didn't even know this. Yeah, look at her face. That's incredulous. Like, John, an award-winning swimmer? Yes, indeed. I'm going to show you. Here it is. The Warwickshire County Council Education Committee Swimming Certificate. Look. And it says, this is to certify that John Stevenson, that's me, has passed the council's first swimming test as follows. 20 metres freestyle. See? I'm an award-winning swimmer. Because... Oh, it says 26th of September 1977. Oh, that was a while ago, wasn't it? But I was an award-winning swimmer all those years ago because I've got a certificate to prove it. That doesn't mean I can swim now. Even if I put my trunks on and just hold this certificate up, it doesn't mean I can swim 20 metres now, does it? And maybe all of us have gifts that we've got but maybe you did it a lot of years ago and you were pretty good then, like cross-stitch or painting or drawing or running or swimming 20 metres or anything like that. But it's been ages since you did it and you're not so good at it anymore. And it's just like athletes and musicians, they have to do a lot of training, don't they? 
to make sure that what they're doing doesn't just get better, but even just stays as it is. They have to train to make sure they're just right, that they're still there. So as talents and abilities can change, if we either make them grow or don't, so our character changes as well. And if we want our character and our relationship with God to grow, we can't just sit in a room and do nothing about it. We have to choose to read the Bible. We have to choose to meet with other people regularly. We have to choose to pray. But it's a choice, isn't it? We have to choose to do these things. Some of us might have continuing professional development at work. Sometimes that's a waste of time, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) From experience. But but we have it. We do it. And we just think, great. CPD. CPD, again, another day. And you, you go for it and you do it. But we need continuing development in our Christian lives as well. Because if we don't, we're just going to shrink. We're going to get worse. We're not going to deal with our high places. Now, in a moment, Paul's going to put a video on, which has got Justin Welby, Welby talking about something that's going on very soon. So we're going to watch that, and we're going to sort of then sort of come back and just think about what it's all about. In the crowd whisper, isn't that the Archbishop of Canterbury over there? And the person's friend hiss back, nah, too short. When I meet Jesus Christ at the judgment, I know one thing. He isn't going to care what size of archbishop I was, or I think whether I was an archbishop. What matters is that I loved him and sought to follow him, and above all, that I trusted in him alone for my life and my future. Because the most important thing I've ever done is to become a follower of Jesus. I took my first steps with him about 42 years ago. Over those years, he's been a faithful friend, a sovereign Lord, compassionate, forgiving, my ever-present saviour, everything in my life, the heart and foundation of all I am. Through the hardest and most painful times and in the best and most joyful times of my life, Jesus has walked alongside me. He's never left, even when I've wanted him to. When I felt ready to give up hope, he picked me up, and it's his love that has healed me and strengthened me. Following Jesus has been the core point of my life, and that's one reason I want everyone to hear his voice calling to them and to learn what it is to find his love, his call, his direction, his purpose. That's why I'm pledging to pray for more people to know the life-transforming love of Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm asking you, along with every Christian community around the world, to join me in pledging to pray as part of Thy Kingdom Come. So you might know a little bit about Justin, because of course he worked in the Neaton for a while, didn't he? This is what Justin said, just a little bit. The most important thing I've ever done is to follow Jesus. He is the heart and foundation of all I am. He sort of says he's the core of my life and things like that he was saying. So that's real encouragement to us that we can say to God, Lord, I want you to be the core of my life, the very centre of my life. Some of you might be very familiar with the start of Romans chapter 12. And if we're going to read all of it, this is all sort of... uh, 
on our website anyway, you could read all of this and from the message, but there's just a little bit that encapsulates it from J.B. Phillips. And he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. And that's what we've been sort of thinking about briefly already today, that we want to say, Lord, I want to follow you wholeheartedly. I want to make my relationship with you vibrant and with zeal. And it's my choice, it's my desire to do that. And it's my choice, God, not to let the world squeeze me, out, squeeze you out and put other things in its place. I bet you're familiar with this. This is Philippians 4, verse 8. Summon it up, <coughs> friends. I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise and not things to curse. In the Amplified, one bit of that says, think continually on these things, centre your mind on them and implant them in your heart. So it's an action can we choose today to centre our minds on God? To say, Lord, give me that implant in my life so as I follow you this week, as I follow you today, I can say, God, I remember those kings of Israel and Judah, and I'm just like those, but Lord, will you help me through your Holy Spirit? Will you come today and help me, give me the desire to follow you with wholeheartedness? Here's a nice little picture. The point of my life is to point to him. But how can we point to Jesus if we're living a dual life? If some of the week we're here and we're with other Christians and it's perhaps easy, we can just say good Christian things. But part of the week maybe we're not. And we're saying things. And, and thinking things. We have bad reactions to people who might do things innocently, but we've still got bad reactions. And perhaps no one knows your reaction to what you're doing, because it's all in here. Everyone might think, oh, he's great, or she's wonderful. But really, there's a battle going on, perhaps for all of us. There's a battle inside our minds. And the good thing is, God does know all about it. And God's here. And he says, I love you. And he puts his arm around you. And he says, don't be afraid. Listen to me. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle. But you still need to make a choice. So can we make a choice today? Can we respond to God and say, Lord, you are speaking to me. I want to respond in a godly way, a Christ-like way. I've had enough of being 90% Christ-like, but 10% horrible. I choose to follow you, Lord. I choose to give all my life to you. And these times when I do think bad things and have this debate in my heart, or debate in my mind, that you will help me 
to give everything to you and respond in a good way. Jill's going to help us respond in a few minutes, but let's just pray and say, Lord, we seal this word in our hearts. Help us to do some things that you want, that you expect us to do. Lord, we thank you for times in the past we've all been really going for you, Lord. Lord, today we decide we want to follow you. Lord, we remember all these kings we've read about over the last few weeks. And Lord, we know that they're just like us. We're just like them. It's only you that can make a difference, Lord, in our lives. So we open our hearts to you again, Lord, and say thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you that you are our saviour. And we choose to give our lives to you again and say, take us and use us, clean us up, and make us more like you. Because, Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen.